They say pedestrians have the right of way. But what's right anyway? Wandering down the walkway of life, rules on the road seem optional today. No shortage of decision to make. Turn left, turn right, speak up, stay quiet. Hold up, wait. But the choice is mine. Money, power, respect. Gonna get what I want. No stop sign. Some have a well-crafted out plan, all mapped out. Coordinates locked into the GPS, just a straight shot. Some like the free flow, you know, live carefree until life pulls out in front. No sick, without warning, from the blind spots. We're left stumped, we're left confused. This is concerning. What is this? Do you even see me? Before there's a where, what, or when, we must start in a place to begin. Who are you? About once a year, I lose my voice. It starts out as a common cold, a little bit of congestion, that annoying post-nasal drip. And about the time I start feeling better, my voice is gone. And it can be so frustrating having something to say, but not having the voice with which to say it. And there are many Christians today who feel very similar. That's the frustration that they have, because we have something important to say to our society and to our culture, but it seems like we've lost our voice and our ability to say it. And no one's quite sure when we lost our voice. Some will say that it was the Christians who failed to respond to that annoying postmodern drip in our society. Others will say it just happened when our culture moved away from its Judeo-Christian foundation. And if there's disagreement about when we lost our voice, there's even greater disagreement about why we lost our voice. Some blame Christians who failed to hold to the truth of God's word. And so they acquiesce to culture and just kind of blend it in with everybody else. Others will say, no, it's other Christians who refuse to properly engage the culture. And so they ostracized people, and now folks aren't interested in what Christians have to say. But regardless of when and regardless of why we lost our voice, there's the question about how do we establish and express our voice in our culture today? And with that, I want to welcome you back to our series, Who Are You? We're looking at the book of 1 Peter, and Peter is talking to us about who we are in Christ. In week one of this series, we talked about needing to believe who we are, that new name that Jesus gives to us when we're born again. And then last week, we talked about how we can become who we are by really holding fast to the Word of God, letting God's Word come in us so God's love comes out of us. And I mentioned at the end of last week's message that the Apostle Peter was going to push us a little bit this week by how we express who we are to the world around us. And so that really brings us to the question for today, and that is, how should we express our voice as Christians in the world today? And we're not the first Christians to ask that question. In fact, the reason that Peter wrote this letter was in part to answer Christians who were asking that question. 2,000 years ago, they lived in a world that was hostile to Christianity. And so they were wondering, do we fight back against the Roman idea? Do we flee and try to go create our own community? Or how should we engage in our culture? And so Peter writes this letter to help answer those questions for them and for us. But Peter does something that's just fascinating. 
before he starts answering this question, how should we express our voice, he actually answers a different question. Should we even have a voice? Which honestly is kind of an offensive question for us today to even hear. I mean, we live in a post-enlightened Western civilized society where everybody has a voice, and we champion the fact that all people have a voice. So that feels like a foolish thing to even ask if, if everybody should have a voice. Should Christians have a voice? But the reason that question's relevant is there are a lot of Christians today who act as if they don't have a voice, or they act as if their voice doesn't matter. Now, nobody says it that way, but they say it this way. Maybe you've heard some of these phrases. Some people will say things like, who am I to judge? Or they'll hear this phrase, to each their own. Or you do you. It's a popular phrase today. I've even heard some Christians who have phrased it this way. Who do we think we are that we should comment on culture? And the Apostle Peter responds to that way of thinking in verse 9 of chapter 2 of his letter. He writes this. He says, but you are a chosen people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, God's special possession, that you may declare the praise of him who called you out of darkness and into his wonderful light. Once you were not a people, but now you are the people of God. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. Peter is saying, we are God's chosen people. Chosen to be set apart for the purpose of him. Just a few verses before verse 9, Peter references how we are becoming the temple, this new temple. Last week we talked about how the temple was that holy place that was set apart for the purpose of God and how we need to be holy like the temple. Now Peter says, you've been chosen to be the temple, that God's spirit actually dwells among you here in society. That's how special you are as a believer. That if you've put your faith and trust in him, you're chosen, and that you are a royal priest. Now, when Peter was writing this in his day, and in that culture, priests had a prominent role in society. That was true in the Old Testament, that was true in pagan cultures, because they understood that God, or the gods in the pagan world, would speak to and through the priests. And so the priests carried the voice of God within culture. So their voice mattered deeply to other people. And Peter is saying, that's now true of, of you and of me. That if we've put our faith in Jesus, we have become royal priests of God Most High here on earth. And that makes us a holy nation, a people that have been set apart. Now, I love being an American citizen. I think this is a great country to be a citizen of. But when we're born again, we are born into an even better citizenship. We become citizens of God's kingdom, citizens of heaven. That becomes our sense of identity. And here's the great news about being a citizen of heaven. There is never going to be an election year in heaven. That I can promise you. Great news. God's always on the throne. That's our new citizenship. And we're ambassadors here in this world. And that makes us God's special possession. Do you have a special possession? Something that you just love to hold on to? My daughter has a special possession. It's this stuffed animal. It's a stuffed bunny. 
and her name is Lavi for her lavender color. Here's a picture of this thing, just this great fluffy bunny, and she carries Lavi around with her everywhere she goes. In fact, we're on Lavi 2.0 because the first one had all the stuffing squeezed out of it. But Lavi is special to her, and if you try to take Lavi away from her, she'll have something to say about it, and you can just ask her brother about that. And that's what Peter is saying, that that's us, that we're God's special possession. But it goes even deeper than, than a girl and her stuffed animal. It's more like me and my daughter. See, Sadie is my daughter. No one else gets to be her dad. And if they tried, I would have something to say about it. Because I have a special relationship with my children. And because of that special relationship, my children know me better than other people know me. In fact, if you wanted to get to know more about me, you could ask my kids because of that special relationship. That's us and God. We're his children and a special prized possession. So that's who we are now that we've accepted Christ. And so should we have a voice in our culture? Absolutely. I mean, an emphatic yes. We are God's chosen people. We have royal blood running through our veins because of who we are in Christ. But with that new sense of identity comes a massive temptation. There's a commercial that's been out for a number of years by the company Capital One. A guy is out shopping for a laptop, and he gets into his car. And to his surprise, Samuel L. Jackson is in the back seat of his car. Have you seen this commercial? And as soon as the guy gets in, Samuel says to him, Gary, 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 my man, you are smart. And you're smart because you're making all these cash back reward decisions using the Capital One credit card and goes on to talk about all the great benefits of this card. And what I love about the commercial is the guy who plays Gary, watching his facial expression change throughout the commercial. At first he's shocked because of the person in his back seat, and then he hears what he starts saying about how smart he is, and, and you watch the continents in his face begin to change. And it goes from surprise and uncertainty to, to confidence and to assurance. And toward the end of the commercial he says, I guess I am pretty smart. To which Samuel L. Jackson immediately replies, don't let that go to your head, Gary. And Peter, after talking to us about who we are in Christ and about how special and chosen and set apart we are, has a, but don't let that go to your head moment in verse 11. Here's what he writes. He says, dear friends, I urge you as foreigners and exiles to abstain from sinful desires which wage war against your soul. Now, for years, I have read verse 11 as the start of a brand new idea, that Peter is kind of done talking about how special and set apart we are, and now just says, you know, continue to avoid sinful behavior. You know, don't get involved in all the things that you see in Roman culture, like idolatry and sexual immorality and greed. And of course, Peter would say, yes, avoid those things. Those will destroy your life. But the sinful desire that he's causing us to be careful about here is actually connected to the verses we just read because he describes us as foreigners and as exiles and what do foreigners and exiles desire what do foreigners and exiles look for what do they long for they long 
for being accepted. They long for status. They long for the society to look at them and say, you belong here. And the temptation that that brings for you and for me is that we can begin to look to our culture for a sense of acceptance and a sense of identity. And here in our nation in particular, we love the rags to riches story. We, we love the story of the foreigner who somehow managed to cross an ocean and found their way here, and then they were able to establish themselves through hard work and, and good fortune, and, and now their voice has a prominent place in our society. And, and that's a great narrative, but the problem with that narrative, the, the, the part that we have to be careful about with that narrative is it can seem that our voice matters because it has been validated by our culture. And that's the temptation that the Apostle Peter is warning you and me about. Because when we lean into that, we can lean in to the pursuit of power within our culture. And unfortunately, some groups of Christians have already given in to that sinful desire. There's a movement throughout Christianity that has been so enamored by the method of Jesus, of accepting people wherever they are in life. And that is a wonderful attribute about God. Did you know that you don't have to clean yourself up for God to be in relationship with you? He comes to you. You don't have to get ready for him. And, and that's a true promise of Scripture. But that's part of the promise. The other promise is that even though Jesus takes us where we're at, he never leaves us where we're at. He's always calling us to a life that's to be lived more like he wants us to live. But some people within Christianity are concerned that that may be offensive to other people, and so they leave out that part of the message. And they do that because they don't want to risk losing their followers and their influence and their power. And so you have a group of people who think that it's okay to follow Jesus by following Jesus' method, even though they have nothing to do with his message. Now, there are other Christians who have also given in to the sinful desire, but in a different way. They've been so committed to the message of Jesus that they've sought it however they can achieve power. In the group in the 1970s and 80s, there was a group of Christians that were really committed to influencing politics. And that's a good and a noble thing to do. But how they went about doing this wasn't to start discipling people who were in positions of authority within our culture or political leaders. And they, they didn't try to find bright young Christians to send into government services or into politics. Instead, they sought to achieve their means through political clout. And unfortunately, the way our political system is set up, the only way to achieve political clout is through coalition building, which meant that in order for their message to have a voice, they had to attach it with a group of people or several people who were living very unbiblical lives, but who were all too happy to court the vote of Christians, who they would give power to in exchange for their vote. And unfortunately, what unintentionally happened is it turned churches into political organizing organizations. 
And even though that happened several decades ago, you still hear remnants about it when any political reporter refers to this thing called the evangelical vote. Folks, God did not call us to be his chosen people to become a voting block, nor did God call us to be his chosen people to win popularity contests. Now, at this point, you may be saying, now, wait a minute, Kyle, hold on. Are you suggesting that we shouldn't do everything we can to try to bring people into the church and try to share with them about the good news about Jesus and be welcoming to to, to folks? Absolutely, we need to do that. We have to go reach out and share with people about the hope of Jesus. But we also have to give them the whole message about Jesus. Well, then are you saying that we shouldn't be involved in politics? No, not at all. In fact, part of the problem with politics is we don't have enough Christians engaged in that. What I'm suggesting is that we have to be careful that we don't fall in love with power and influence at the expense of the message. Because I'll just tell you what I have personally struggled with in my own journey with this is I've had to come to grips with an uncomfortable question. See, at at times I've had to ask myself, am I more concerned with people hearing about Jesus or am I more concerned with my right to speak about Jesus? And you'll say, well, those aren't mutually exclusive things. I, I know, but sometimes my focus can be. When I was in high school, I had a science teacher who was an outspoken atheist. And in the spring semester, he taught through the required curriculum on evolution. Now, as a good church-going kid, I felt like it was my obligation to stand up, to make sure that other voices were heard. And so every day in class, I was relentless in making sure that I was pushing back and, and letting people know that there were other voices that needed to be heard about creationism or intelligent design or how God would have been involved in the, in the elements of evolution. And I was just obnoxious. And finally, one day, the teacher called my bluff. And he said, Kyle, I keep hearing you go on and on about this. I tell you what, I'm going to give you one of our class periods. And you can lay out a case for all of your fellow students to hear. And I thought I had won. I thought, this is it. This is the moment. This is going to spark a revival in my high school. People are going to know the truth. I mean, they they may make a Christian movie about this. I mean, I was all excited about it. And the day of the presentation came, and I could not have been more disappointed. My classmates had no interest in what I was saying. They were so disengaged and honestly pretty annoyed that they had to sit through a presentation from me just carrying on about all the things that I already talked about. After the class was over, I was out in the hallway, and a group of students came up to me, and they said to me, hey, so we want to know, when's your next battle in your war against the teacher? And it was in that moment I realized they didn't hear anything from me about a message of love or a message of hope or a message of purpose and significance. All they heard was me fighting for my voice to be heard. And they perceived that I was actually against the teacher. See, I was all about being God's chosen representative. And I completely missed verse 12. Peter says this. He says, live such good lives among the pagans that though they accuse you of doing wrong, 
They may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day he visits us. And these words transformed the original audience that Peter wrote to. Because it was about a hundred years after Peter wrote this that there was something miraculous that happened in the Roman world. It was kind of in that mid-second century that a plague broke out. And we think that it was likely the first outbreak of smallpox. And it just ravished the population. A, A quarter to a third of the population died from this plague. And in the Roman world at the time, they viewed mercy and compassion as being character defects. And so Christians were made fun of, Christians were pushed out of society, Christians had no influence, they had no place, because they thought, who wants to be merciful and compassion? That's such a waste of time. But when the plague happened, and the Romans were just throwing dead bodies onto piles and not giving proper burials, and when someone would get sick, they would, they would, nobody would touch them and they'd kick them out of society for fear that other people would catch the disease, except for Christians. These ones who were marginalized in society. It was Christians who buried the dead and were honoring of their bodies. It was Christians who welcomed those who were sick into their homes, even at the risk of getting sick themselves, so they could take care of those who were ill and nurse them back to health. And this transformed the Roman world, not because of political influence, not because they demanded for their voice to be heard, but because one by one, people realized this is a better way to be human. And I wonder, in the midst of this global pandemic that we're going through, are we showing the pagans in our society that same type of love? Ray Johnson is the pastor at Bayside Church out in California, and he tells the story in one of his books about the early days of Bayside. The church was meeting in a school and busting at the seams, and they had just recently purchased some land to build their first church building. But neighbors who lived around that plot of land weren't too happy about a church moving in here on Sundays. They were worried about all the traffic that this would cause, and so they began to protest Bayside. And one day even showed up outside the school where the church was meeting to protest the building of this new building. And so as people were coming into church that day, these protesters were handing out misinformation about Bayside Church to everybody that walked in. And the church saw this happening. And rather than call the police and have them removed from the premise, the church got together a bunch of coffee and donuts And they brought it out to the protesters. And it was kind of an overcast, little drizzly day in the Bay Area. And as that drizzle turned into a little bit more of a lighter rain, the church brought out jackets and umbrellas to help keep the protesters dry so they could hand out this information. And then when that rain became harder, they actually offered to take the information from the protesters and willingly, get this, willingly stuff it into the service bulletin and hand it to every person going into worship that morning so the protesters could go home and be warm and dry but know that their message got out to the church people. Who does that? Christians. Christians 
who understand who they are, do that. Where did Peter come up with this? Where, where did Peter learn this? Where did Peter get these words that we're supposed to live our lives this way? Peter got it from the teaching of Jesus. In fact, he learned this lesson in a very significant way. On the night that Christ was arrested, right before his crucifixion. It was that scene where the angry mob is there to arrest Jesus, and, and Peter's watching all of this happen, and he panics. And in his panic, he's concerned about his Messiah being taken away, and so he grabs a sword and draws it, and he cut off the ear of the high servant's of the high priest's servant. And Jesus, seeing this act of violence, seeing Peter fighting back, turns to him and looks at Peter and says, no, Peter, put your sword away. That is not how my kingdom is going to come. And so instead of fighting, Peter fled. And he fled from the presence of Jesus, and then he fled from the association of Jesus denying even knowing who Christ is multiple times. And in the midst of our world, where we're concerned about our voice in the midst of our society, we, like Peter, are tempted to either fight or to flight. And we need to do neither. We need to live our lives in such a way that people will actually want to meet the Jesus that we speak about. Not because they necessarily agree immediately with everything we say, but because they're so impressed with how we live our lives. So, for this message, don't fight. You don't need to fight to establish your voice within culture. And the reason you don't is because your voice already matters. Because of not what the world says about us, but because of what God says about us. You are royalty. You're a child of God Most High. And we need to listen to what he says about us more than how the world tells us that we should get our voice out there. In fact, I am more concerned or concerned that, that Christians today are listening more to the voice of the world than they are to God's word about how to advocate for themselves. In fact, there are some Christians today who are being discipled about how to engage in culture more from CNN, MSNBC, NPR, or Fox News than they are from Scripture. And if you listen to the message that our world gives, it's all about whoever is against your message is your enemy, and your enemy must be defeated at all cost. And I just want to say that for those of us who are committed followers of Jesus, here's, here's the truth about this, is that when we view those against our message as our enemy, we've already lost our mission. Because the people who stand against our message, they're not the enemy they're being held captive by the enemy. They've believed in the lies of the enemy, but they themselves are not the enemy. They're the mission for our church. So don't fight against those people. But the second thing is that we should not flee. Because far too often, we're not sure what to do. If, if we're not supposed to fight, then what do we do? And, and far too many Christians just hang back. Don't flee, but instead engage. 
find somebody with whom you passionately disagree. Somebody who maybe has a different viewpoint of the world from you. Somebody who doesn't know Jesus yet. And just maybe even this week, call him on the phone and just listen to him. Or take him out for a socially distant cup of coffee and just commit to hear what they have to say. Because you might be amazed that as we love people and we listen to people, that we begin to gain a voice in their life. Not because we've demanded to have a voice, but because they've been so impressed with how we have treated them, even when they know that we disagree with them. And that will transform lives. Bayside Church finally built their building. All the permits got through, they were able to start construction And a few weeks after they had opened the building, there was a man that came up to Pastor Ray. And he said, Ray, you may not recognize me, but I was one of the protesters who stood outside the school that day. I was concerned about all the noise that this would cause on Sunday, and so I didn't want you to build this building because I just live across the street. But he said, I was so impressed with how your church treated me when I came to protest you, that as I watched this building go up, I thought to myself, maybe that's what I'm missing in my life. And so if it's okay with you, Ray, I'd like to start attending church here. And because of how Bayside lived their lives, they welcomed that person not only to Bayside Church, but into the kingdom of God. When we live our lives in such a good way, people will want to hear about Jesus. I recognize that this message has a lot to it. And if you're like me, the words that Peter writes to us can just feel a little heavy at times. And so I want to take just a moment for all of us to just sit and reflect. I've asked our worship teams to play a song for us, for you to listen to the words. And in this season, and in this moment, to ask God to speak to you. Maybe there's somebody or some things that you've been fighting against, and honestly, you've been going about it the wrong way. Maybe you need to confess that. And ask God to help you find a new way forward. Or maybe there's someone in your life that you know doesn't know Jesus. And you've been viewing them not as the mission, but as the enemy. And instead of fighting them or fleeing from them, you need to engage with them. And during this time, would you allow God to speak to you? To let you know who some of those people are in your life? so that you can share with them the hope and the love of Christ. So let's prepare our hearts to have God speak to us now. And so Father, the words that you have given to us through your servant Peter are weighty. Father, the mission that you have given to us is so important. And Lord, we confess that at times we can get caught up in the dynamics of this world. 
But Father, would you now speak to us individually about who the people in our lives are that need to know about you? Father, I pray that in the stillness of this space, wherever we are gathered, Lord, that you would bring those individuals to mind. And then, Father, after the song, that you would unify us about how we best engage. Help me to love with all 
arms like you do A love that erases all the lights and sees the truth Oh, that when they look in my eyes, they would see you Even in just a smile, they would feel the Father's love Even in just a smile, they would feel the Father's love Well, I want to thank the teams for playing those songs. Hopefully you heard from God. Maybe a name or two came to mind about somebody that you might need to engage with. Several years ago here at Wooddale Church, Pastor Dale introduced us to a concept about how we can live on mission in our world. And the concept is really simple, but incredibly profound. It's called Adopt Seven. And the idea is that we can all find seven people in our lives. Maybe they're people that we know, maybe they're people that we know of, but they're seven people that we have regular interactions with who might need to hear about the hope of Jesus. Maybe it's the person who pours coffee at your favorite coffee place, maybe it's a relative, maybe it's a coworker, maybe it's somebody within your own family, but that we would list out seven people. And if you don't know them by name, write their description in there but seven people that we would commit to do three things with those individuals. Here they are. It's the first that we would pray for them, that we would pray that they would come to a saving knowledge of who Jesus is, that we would pray for opportunities to, to love them, that we would pray for God to pursue them and for them to be open to the message of God and that we would serve them. That, that we would go out of our way to be honoring to them and, and serve them and, and seek for their good and for their success. And then, when God provides the opportunity that we would share with them about the hope of Jesus. And we have a great resource for you if you want to engage in Adopt7. You can find it right here on our website, wooddale.org slash adopt-7. And there's a great suggestions on how we can engage people, how we can be praying for them, and how we can be serving them. And this little tool of committing to identifying seven people in our influence, it'll not only transform your life as you start praying for other people and living on mission, it will transform their life as well. In fact, Wooddale, can you imagine what it will be like to live here in the Twin Cities when all of us who call Wooddale Church our home would commit to do this with seven people in our life. Can you imagine how we would start seeing people differently? Can you imagine the level of gratitude that other people would have for Christians? Because they're seeing that we are living our lives in a whole different way. And what a joy it will be as we see one by one by one God bring those individuals to faith. Now you may be saying, Kyle, that all sounds good and I'm excited for this, but what do I do when we get to that third part? When they ask me about Jesus, what do I share with them? Well, the Apostle Peter tells us. And Pastor Heather is going to tell us what Peter says to us about how we share the hope of Jesus with people next weekend. 
So I do hope you'll join us then as we wrap up this series, Who Are You?